Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities. We continue our preview of the 2020 Kentucky Book Festival online with two authors, one a historian and the other a well-known Kentucky novelist, and today we will hear from both of them. Bobby Ann Mason has published many novels, including the celebrated Shiloh and other stories. We'll hear from her in a moment. First, Melanie Beals-Gone is Associate Professor of History at the University of Kentucky, specializing in women's history in the United States. She is the author of Mary Breckenridge, The Frontier Nursing Service, and Rural Health in Appalachia. Her new, much-anticipated book is A Simple Justice, Kentucky Women Fight for the Vote, published by the University Press of Kentucky. As we have said uh, several times this year, this is a, a special year of celebration for the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, passed uh, by Congress on June 4th, 1919, and ratified on August 18, 1920. The 19th Amendment granted women the right to vote. But the struggle for the passage of the 19th Amendment went on for decades before, many, many years before that final vote. Melanie, welcome to Think Humanities. Thanks, Bill. Good to be here. If you will uh, set the scene for us, um, as you do in the introduction of your book, uh, the, I, I found it intriguing, the time, uh, the, the city, the place, uh, the one of the main characters, as the state legislature in this particular state is preparing to vote on the ratification of the amendment. Um, why is that gathering important? If you will set the scene and then uh, tell us the, the significance of that vote. Sure. Um, I started the book, not in Kentucky, actually, in Nashville, Tennessee, because that's where the final state to ratify that vote came um, in August of 1920. And Laura Clay was rushing to get there in time for that vote. Laura Clay, the name most synonymous with the Kentucky suffrage movement, she had been a leader both on a state level and a national level for over three decades. And now she was rushing to Tennessee to be part of history being made. And so I set the stage. She's going to the Hermitage Hotel, and it's a very opulent uh, location filled bustling with people who are um, there trying to shape the outcome of the vote because this was do or die for anti-suffragists. This was the end of the road. If Tennessee ratified, it was over. And so a lot at stake and Laura Clay there uh, joining in. But the twist of it all is that Laura Clay is not there to support ratification of the 19th Amendment. She is there to do everything possible to see it go down in defeat. And so for me as an author, it's a wonderful way to start a story and hopefully hook readers who want to know more about this odd turn of events. How does this woman who was so critical to uh, to lobbying for suffrage for many years. How does she line up on the other side when it's all said and done? So tell us more about Laura Clay. Um, describe her um, and uh, to us and, and her arrival at the hotel and how she was a, a bit uh, coy or secretive in the way she was moving through the hotel and uh, the, the people that she tried to avoid and I will also say you said that you used the word hook. I, it, it did that because um, that is um, a, a writer's technique, an author uh, as yourself, a, a technique that really uh, began right at the beginning to raise the questions about how could this woman who we know a little bit about uh, been so active, or at least history tells us 
that she's uh, so important to the movement, all of a sudden uh, change the way she's thinking. Yeah, you know, I get, I have her arrive at the hotel. Um, she comes in from the train station. She's trying to dust off uh, from the trip and uh, checking into her room and then riding the elevator down. And she doesn't stop at the floors where all of her colleagues from the National American Woman Suffrage Association are set up. She keeps going down the elevator. And there she hooks up with uh, Josephine Pearson and other women who are uh, a very active anti-suffragists and also very racist in a lot of their arguments that they're making. I mean, these are things, the, the kind of uh, positions they're taking are things that Laura Clay at one time in her life, or even still, I think probably was a little um, sickened by some of the arguments they're making that, you know, women aren't equipped to be in public life, that it's going to ruin women. I mean, obviously, Laura Clay had been involved and, and very visible in public life for many years. And so now she's compromising a lot of her principles, because at the end of the day, she wants women to vote, but she doesn't want women to vote if it means there's a federal amendment involved. She wants suffrage to come through state means, state legislators who amend our own Kentucky constitution to give women the vote. She doesn't want the federal government doing it for us. Tell us the difference in, um, uh, other than just the, uh, the different uh, levels of government, tell us uh, uh, why she was so um, involved in the state issue uh, rather than a federal issue. Wouldn't, wouldn't they both have uh, done the same thing? They, they would have, but a federal amendment opened the door for other federal interventions that Laura Clay didn't support. And, and not necessarily even Laura Clay to her very core. There's a point in her life where she actually is on board with a federal amendment. I think because she never thought it would actually come to fruition. She knew that Southern states, there were enough Southerners that would line up to keep uh, the the three-fourths of the number of states that were needed to ratify from ever happening. And so in the back of her mind, a federal amendment, it was okay as long as it was hypothetical and probably never really going to happen. Once she realizes that a federal amendment is a real possibility, she becomes very anxious. And I think it's largely because of her role as a Southern suffragist. And knowing the racial fears of Southern states, uh, they likened the 19th Amendment to the 15th Amendment. It was going to be a repeat of the 15th Amendment, opening up their elections, opening up their business to the federal government to to mess with it. And, And Laura Clay, as a Southern suffragist who was revered across the South for her role she couldn't risk losing the support of Southern allies. Was she as well known nationally um, uh, outside of of Kentucky, Tennessee and the South as were some of the, if they were national leaders like um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, or uh, of course, everyone knows Susan B. Anthony's name. Yeah. You know, I would classify Laura Clay as, one of Susan B. Anthony's girls, uh, uh, the the next generation hand-tapped by Miss Susan to carry on the legacy of suffrage. And so as a uh, Laura Clay, she was a national officer of the uh, suffrage, main suffrage organization. She was auditor. And so she was in a position of prominence. A lot of people knew her name, and and partly just because she was one of the Clays, and being Cassius Clay's daughter, really, I mean, he was kind of a splashy guy. They knew his name, and so Laura Clay also um, was was very well known. Uh, splashy guy, uh, good description, um, and and there were uh, could be other choice uh, adjectives that could, could be applied to him. Tell tell us about. Uh, Cassius Clay at, at the at the time, um, why he was uh, certainly uh, controversial, um, not necessarily uh, 
supportive, yet uh, because of his personality, there were some drawbacks. Just pa- paint a little picture of uh, of uh, Laura Clay's uh, father. Yeah, well, Cassius Clay uh, from Madison County, an emancipationist um, known for carrying a Bowie knife and defending himself and his press. Uh, he had a cannon to, in case he needed to blow up the offices of his uh, abolitionist press. Um, so all kinds of great stories of Cassius Clay. In terms of the suffrage movement, though, he really helps in Kentucky becoming a state where suffrage was considered uh, and and became a popular issue because he treated the women in his life so poorly. His his wife, Mary Jane Warfield Clay, he divorces her um, after she had worked so diligently to keep the home fires burning. He had four daughters, Laura being one of uh, uh, several sisters, and all of those Clay women go on to become active in suffrage in the 1870s, when it's still very early, um, Kentucky, pretty conservative state, religiously, politically. Um, Here you have this bubbling support for suffrage, and in large part, it's because of Cassius Clay's actions. Mm -hmm. You state rather uh, emphatically that Kentuckians, uh, I believe this is a uh, an accurate quote, close to it, Kentuckians by and large whistled Dixie. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, if we look at the Civil War legacy of Kentucky, and I have a hard time sometimes convincing students or or getting them to understand that Kentucky was a union state during the Civil War because I think in our minds when we when we how we understand Kentucky um, our, our identity as Kentuckians at a basic level we see ourselves as southerners and a lot of that happens through the transformation what what takes place during the Civil War and the the shifting loyalties that go on but by the end of the war certainly, uh, if Kentucky hadn't seceded earlier, early on, they had seceded uh, at least in attitude by the end of the war. And, and Kentuckians tended to align with Southerners on a lot of issues, especially in Western Kentucky. Uh, certainly the race issue was very important, just like it was in the Deep South. And so um, when suff- women's suffrage is being considered in Kentucky, it's never just an issue about gender. It's always an issue about race as well. How did that, um, expound on that a bit, if you will, how did that manifest itself, uh, especially in Western Kentucky? Uh, I don't, uh, although there were uh, vast uh, holdings uh, by uh, white uh, gentlemen, uh, families, uh, we're we're not known as a state. Uh, I don't believe uh, we we had large homes and and land, but they weren't called at that time plantations that I that I know of. Maybe there were, and you can correct me on that. Uh, so how did how did the Western Kentuckians and and others too see themselves as more southern than than uh, maybe not northern, but uh, at least at that time. Um, neutral or middle ground? Well, one thing I would say about that is Kentucky, yes, didn't have, it It, it was not the picture we have in our mind of large scale plantation, large plantations that dominated in the South, but you do have small scale, very pervasive holdings and the the domestic slave trade in Kentucky, very critical to our economy. And so a lot of Kentuckians come with this legacy of slaveholding in their past. And and what it means for the Kentucky suffrage movement and Laura Clay, which is always a little bit ironic because Laura Clay, the daughter of an emancipationist, But when she builds a state suffrage organization, the Kentucky Equal Rights Association, it is an all-white organization, and very intentionally so. And part of her argument is that they're trying to win over support from Kentuckians in all regions of the state, especially Western Kentucky. It was one of the hardest areas for 
CARA, the Kentucky Equal Rights Association, to tap into. And Laura Clay really bowed to a lot of the racial prejudices that she argued were deeply rooted throughout the state to say that CARA had to be a white organization. It had to be all white. That She wasn't even interested in organizing separate, segregated suffrage organizations for Black women. She was only interested in drawing white support for for women's right to vote in Kentucky. When were African-American women invited to participate? (laughs) Very rarely. And never, from what I can tell, at, at, at Laura Clay's instruction. We have a couple of women in the state, white women, who were more racially progressive uh, Susan Look Avery is one who wrote an essay in 1903 called Justice to the Negro. She was more interested in interracial activities, a woman named Eugenia Farmer. Uh, but Farmer was only in Kentucky for several years, left the state to move with her husband elsewhere. And when she leaves in about 1897, after that, really, you see very few efforts to work across racial lines on suffrage. Who was Lucy Stone? Well, Lucy Stone's a national leader. She was, um, she later becomes president of the American Women's Suffrage Association, kind of a um, uh, colorful figure herself. She cut her hair very short. She wore a bloomer costume and she visited Louisville in the 1850s. And that's one of the first times where Kentuckians really start to think of this issue of women possibly voting sometime in the future. Was that due um, her uh, popularity, if you uh, can call it that, uh, was that due to the press, uh, to, to the Louisville newspaper that uh, and, and befriending the um, the editor publisher of that uh, um, of that newspaper. Yeah, when Lucy Stone visited in the 1850s, I wouldn't say she was popular. She was intriguing to people, mm-hmm. and uh, the several of the Louisville newspapers give her sort of respectful press. They they cover her visits. It helps draw a lot of attention. Um, later on, the Louisville Courier Journal is going to, and Henry Watterson is, they're going to be decidedly anti-suffrage. But in the 1850s, uh, yeah, Lucy Stone's visit is helping to drum up some, some support, or at least uh, a recognition that this idea is out there. Uh, you, you mentioned a couple of, um, of small Kentucky cities, very small of uh, Kentucky cities. And some interesting background on Glendale um, and Dayton, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. What what role did they play? How prominent uh, was uh, was Glendale in this story? Yeah, Glendale is very interesting, um, and another one of these cases where suffrage doesn't come out of nowhere. Although the Clay sisters really helped to kind of uh, inspire people. But there are Kentuckians who are talking about suffrage before uh, they they really make it a big deal. So in the 1860s in Glendale, and my guess is just a few like-minded people come together. There was a woman's college there, and maybe some progressive Hmm. people were brought together for that reason. They get really excited, and they write to national suffrage publications to say that they're they're out there and they're recruiting for the suffrage cause and they hope to have 50 new members by next year. And it seems to be this huge deal, a a really monumental effort, and then disappears entirely. And that was one of my great frustrations in researching this story is I never really found out what happened there in Glendale and Hmm. Much more about who was involved, what inspired them, um, and and same way uh, in Northern Kentucky, um, you have uh, just 
brief moments, it seems like, where people come together and say, this is an issue we're, we're interested in. And then I don't know if it's because of embarrassment, if they're maybe shamed into uh, kind of falling away, or they just lose interest. But there was never a sustained motivation until the Kentucky Equal Rights Association comes on board. Uh, Melanie, uh, in a description, um, uh, part of the press packet, uh, there was uh, uh, this uh, uh, paragraph and a couple of sentences. Uh, Women's suffrage was not simply a question of whether women could and should vote. It carried more serious implications for the white supremacy and for the balance of federal and state powers, especially in a border state. Uh, the term white supremacy uh, has been used for decades, but it just seems like, uh, in fact, uh, the New York Times just uh, a week ago uh, in, uh, wrote a, an article on the um, the proliferation or the, the use uh, more of the use of white supremacy um, into the rhetorical, uh, they called it the rhetorical bloodstream with force and power, um, and it went on to, to point out um, that the meaning of the words uh, has expanded. Um, uh, Ten years ago, uh, usually you referred to white supremacy when you talked about the, the Ku Klux Klan or uh, when, uh, I guess, David Duke was uh, around and and running for office, um, the neo Nazi from Louisiana. Uh, now you you hear white supremacy used uh, so much more often uh, and applied in in so many uh, different ways. Uh, the Times again uh, pointed out uh, that white supremacy it, it comes up in SAT scores as a factor for admissions decisions. Uh, police departments, um, enforcement policies. We see that and have seen that all summer uh, in Kentucky and, and the nation. So what what is the application of, of uh, and the implication for white supremacy in the balance of federal and state powers? How do you see that in your uh, book, Simple Justice? Well, I use those words very carefully and and very strategically. And I think they're absolutely the right words to use when we're thinking about a lot of the strategies for enfranchising women. It has to do with maintaining white supremacy. And, and certainly that's the case here in Kentucky, certainly throughout the Deep South. And the national movement embraces that idea. National leaders say this is a good way to get suffrage across the finish line if we can make an argument rooted in the idea of white supremacy, that the more white voters there are, that will drown out any Black votes that are cast. And so giving white women the right to vote is a good strategy to protect white supremacy. And this is very much, it's not something that, you know, they're talking about behind closed doors. They're like, shh, don't, you know, don't let anyone know this is what we're thinking. I mean, they're shouting it from the rooftops that this is a valid way to protect white power in America and, and, giving women the vote that has a, uh, you know, this added benefit that, that white, uh, white voices and white power is going to be protected. Mm-hmm. So, so I think, you know, it, the more we recognize that and the more we understand that as a nation and make it part of the discourse, not just the David Dukes, but this was a common way of thinking and women like Laura Clay, certainly other Kentucky women share this notion that they have to protect white supremacy. It's their duty to do it. That is a, uh, a, a little known, uh, what, a, what a wonderful fact uh, that you've, uh, whether it's been uncovered or whether not you, uh, it's, it hasn't been written about as prominently, I think, as you have done so in, in Simple Justice. Um, I, I could be, I have not read all the, 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 the canon uh, of, uh, 
of suffrage books, of course. But uh, I think it's um, I think it's wonderful that you bring that uh, to the forefront and talk about it. Well, I think because Laura Clay so embodied, we can understand this mentality through a particular person who lived it. And so it, it gives us a way to better understand what this looked like lived out in one person's life. Well, Melanie Gohn will be joining a distinguished panel of uh, other writers on women's suffrage. Uh, This is on November the 14th at 12 noon. Uh, Elaine Weiss, Martha S. Jones, and Melanie Gohn will be discussing uh, women's suffrage. Uh, They've all written um, engrossing and fascinating accounts of the history and impact of women's suffrage. Um, As we've just discussed uh, in a variety of ways, their books um, and the work that they've done uh, depict a, a much fuller view of the impact of the women's suffrage movement, which I find in simple justice is um, is something we all need to know so much more about. Uh, the moderator for that um, um, particular panel will be Dr. Kathy uh, Bullock, uh, whose uh, academic work includes documenting the journey and contributions of African-American women in the struggle for a right to vote in the U.S. And we, Melanie, had her on our Think Humanities podcast not too long ago. She's a member of our Think, uh, of our Kentucky Humanities uh, Speakers Bureau. Um, And that uh, panel is sponsored by the Kentucky Historical Society. It'll be one of the best on Book Festival Day, November 14th, uh, I'm sure. Uh, The festival, uh, as we have uh, told you on this podcast, uh, runs from November 9th through the 14th. Uh, it, it is our attempt uh, virtually and online to connect book lovers and authors, uh, speakers of, uh, of all genres, uh, and you, uh, our listeners and, and viewers uh, of Kentucky Humanities and of uh, the book festival comes around. And this year, it just happens to be on the Internet. And we hope you'll join us for that. We there, there's so many uh, great panels. Look at our, our website, kyhumanities.org uh, or kentuckybookfestival.org for a complete and full schedule uh, of that. And we're going to talk to one of those other um, guests uh, at the virtual Kentucky Book Festival next on Think Humanities. That's novelist Bobby Ann Mason right after this word from our good friends at Spalding University. Spalding University is affordable, nationally distinguished, low-residency MFA in writing. Offers excellent instruction in a compassionate, supportive community. Focus on your own area of concentration. Explore across genres and examine the interrelatedness of the arts. During one-on-one independent study, you'll write prolifically and receive expert feedback from your faculty mentor. Developing the discipline to keep writing for life. Study fiction poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. It's so nice, a treat to have Bobby Ann Mason on our Think Humanities podcast. As I mentioned, she is the author of a number of works of fiction, including Shiloh and Other Stories and In Country, and her memoir, Clear Springs, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She was a writer-in-residence at the University of Kentucky and lives and writes in Lexington today, and it's so good to have her on the podcast. Welcome, Bobby Ann. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's just jump right into your very latest. Uh, hasn't been out that long, but tell us about Dear Anne. Dear Anne, um, Dear Anne, uh, with the bluebird on the cover. Um, <clears throat> it's a love story um, set in wartime, uh, the Vietnam War. It's in, it takes place in 1966, 67 mostly. Um, and um, it's. Um, it um, is about a graduate student uh, who um, imagines 
a life, an alternate life for herself. <clears throat> Actually, Anne is um, remembering this from 2017, 50 years later, and she's uh, wondering what would have happened to her if she had gone to Stanford University, as was recommended, um, instead of a small school on the East Coast. And so um, there's an opportunity for her to imagine that a, a love story would have turned out differently. <clears throat> so she starts thinking back and imagining herself at Stanford University. You have written about uh, Vietnam before. In, in country, um, yes, about um, um, a teenager whose father had died in the war. And she's coming of age and wanting to know more about him. And returning to not only Vietnam, but to uh, the 60s, which you know a little bit about. Um, I was when, there. <laughs> yeah, and, and me too. And that's what makes this uh, so interesting and, and, and such a, a lovely novel for, uh, dare I say, for all readers, but for boomers, for uh, people of a certain generation. Uh, it recalls so uh, many of uh, what? Iconic uh, figures that we knew of, of music, of art, of what was going on at that, at that time. In fact, uh, 1968 is is prominent uh, in the novel, and right now we both know that uh, there is a a new Netflix drama out uh, on uh, the Chicago Seven, which oh, right. we remember well. And when I mention that to younger people, they stare at me and with a question: uh, Who? Hoffman, you're talking about Abby Hoffman. Who who could that be? So, uh, it's a good, it, it's a good nostalgic uh, read. Uh, a wonderful story for I think uh, uh, people. Again, uh, I think all all readers, but of well, um, of people of our our generation. Well, someone just told me that he read it and he identified with all of Anne's. Uh, confusion and insecurity and the intensity um, that young people were feeling at that time. And he said, of course, my time was 1996 to 99. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, I'm, I'm glad that he, um, and as you know, too, students uh, today are, are going through some of the same problems that we did uh, in the 60s. I mean, it's just... Uh, well, yeah, um, I wanted to write about the 60s without relying on the cliches about it. Uh, even those students who have never heard of Abby Hoffman probably have heard of uh, plenty of the cliches from the 60s and the dominant music. Um, but I wanted to write about what it was like to be a young person then. What um, I wanted to write about the innocence and um, the idealism and just what it was like day to day, because I feel that most of them were really on a quest to find themselves and to find um, a person they could share their lives with. And um, those are such basic things that occur regardless of all those cliches that are remembered. And um, so I'd, I'm not sure I've ever read anything from the six about the 60s, any fiction that really uh, goes into what it was like to be a student. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, how long have you desired to write about the 60s, or how long have you thought of um, what is in the novel from the standpoint of of the music and of the, the, the personalities or basing some of your characters on uh, either national figures at the time or someone that you admired. Of course, you're the professor that you have a relationship with. I would imagine a relationship as far as writing is concerned uh, is someone that possibly is based on somebody in your life. 
Um, maybe a springboard, but the character turns out to be very different and to have a function in, in uh, a different function in the story. Um, and, and as far as that's concerned, um, you could say it's a little autobiographical in that I, I was there. I remember so many of the details of put in the novel, but at the same time, I have fashioned it into something different. Um, and um, uh, for example, um, I I myself had the question: What if I'd gone to Stanford instead of uh, Harper College? And um, because I knew so many people who went to Stanford, and that could have been a choice for me, possibly. So I always wondered that. So I set up that question for Anne in the novel. And I thought I would write about her as if she'd gone to Stanford. But I had never seen the campus myself, so I didn't know much about it. And as it happened, I didn't get to go do research and find out for myself what it was like. So I had to um, um, just study maps and, and keep a log of the weather in Palo Alto. And uh, uh, so it... Um, so I was inventing uh, Stanford, and that's Anne's goal, to invent Stanford. And so it, it turns out that uh, the trajectory of the story is that she is trying to invent Stanford in her life. And she succeeds much better in creating the world of Stanford than she does in, in revising her memories. She can't imagine a different um, story to her life. And that's what she'd set out to do, but she, she can't. So um, the elements of the story uh, and the way you, you build it from serious boyfriend to uh, Keats and Shelley classes, or as Jimmy uh, called it, Kelly in, in sheets. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> um, uh, all of those things she's uh, she's imagining, and 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 you are you are placing her in in that environment. Is that correct? Well, uh, she's not imagining Jimmy or Keats and Shelley. She's imagining that they were at Stanford when they met, <laughs> and that they were in a seminar with um, Ivor Winters, who was just a critic whose book she had. <clears throat> and it uh, is inevitable. In fact, you've already mentioned that. Um, but expound on it, if you would, just a bit about uh, whether or not you are Anne in Dear Anne, the autobiographical part of um, of of this novel. Um. Well. It's not uh, the the plot. The story is not my. It's not me. I think maybe her sensibility and her origins on uh, a farm in Kentucky are true to my own background, and and the the narrative is punctuated with letters from Anne's mother, and the source of that is my mother who is always in my fiction in some shape or form, usually her voice. And uh, even though um, uh, Mama's letters appear in the, the book, they weren't actually my mother's letters. I made up all these letters. So, you know, almost everything is fiction, and yet I drew it intuitively and, and uh, just out of my own emotional life. You did some research um, uh, on Stanford and uh, looking at pictures, and um, you, you've you've done that before. When you can't visit, uh, you, you're doing the research. Did you do that for for the other themes in the book, or the other uh, the other characters, or the mention of? Uh, uh, are you still listening to Grateful Dead uh, music and? Uh, Going back and in, in, in reading or, or or looking at at memorabilia from the sixties. Um, no, I didn't have to do that. I actually went to Palo Alto to see the Stanford campus 
about a year ago. And I had basically finished Dear Anne, but I was able to add a few details and to, to correct some things. And I'm glad I did because it was an astonishing place and I hadn't realized it was so big and that there were so many great trees. Mm. Um, so I was able to fill out uh, Anne's imagined Stanford a bit. What did you learn um, from your your good friends, uh, Wendell and Ed and Gurney and others about uh, their time at Stanford? Well, um, it was something that was always in the background of my life um, that I uh, uh, heard uh, um, their stories about what it was like to be Stegner Fellows during that time. And I just uh, grew grew through the 60s and 70s knowing all about Ken Kesey and the, the, the bus and the Merry Pranksters and and um, all of all of that cast of characters. So that was just sort of um, something I heard about that helped to inspire um, my question, what if I had gone there? But I didn't have to do more research. You had done that really um, organically through your conversations yeah. and, and, and living some of that. Uh, uh, yeah. so, someone wrote, I'm sure with your approval, because it's in um, some of the material that um, is uh, was sent to me. Uh, I believe that's where I got this, or maybe it was on a website. Um, but a, a sentence um, that, that I, that struck me uh, that I thought kind of captured, uh, Anne and, and speaking of her, uh, this person wrote a uh, quote, uh, the, the novel, how consideration of the road not taken of memory and imagination can illuminate and perhaps overtake our present. Um, I think that's on the book jacket, isn't it? Oh, you know, you know, I don't, I don't even. I've got the book right here. I don't even know. I, I this came from um, one of the uh, one of the reviews. Um, I don't see it on the on the, but I'll, I'll keep looking at. It. So, so tell me what you think that that writer in describing uh, the book um, meant to you. How consideration of the road not taken of memory and imagination can illuminate and perhaps overtake our present. I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't think of it as a major theme. Um, I just thought, well, what what would she think about if she, what would it have been like? And so I just set her off. And, and it's important in the first of the book to understand why she's doing this. <laughs> um, and it starts out with Anne on a cruise ship in 2017. And something is causing her to want to escape into memory and to call upon her imagination to change it. Mm -hmm. I love what you wrote in the acknowledgments. Just because, I mean, I just think that's that's such a beautiful uh, tribute to your your close friends and what you learned from them and the letters that uh, th this uh, second paragraph, Gurney Norman, Gurney wrote me dazzling letters about hanging out on Perry Lane in Menlo Park with Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. I got firsthand reports from the early 60s scene as it was happening. Uh, th that's, I think that shows a, a real bond and a real close kinship, friendship with, with these uh, Kentucky writers, which you, you are so close to and that you belong to. I, it, it had to mean a lot just to recall all of that and then and then to put it down in in such a a, a lovely volume oh well thank you um they they, they all meant a, 
mean a great deal to me. Um, and um, I, I think of it as a tribute, and I mean for it to be a source of inspiration for the story. They, they had their stories about life on the West Coast uh, in the 60s, the early 60s, before the real stuff <clears throat> caught hold. Um, and, you know, I, did, I didn't live that. I heard about it. And it, it was dazzling to the imagination. And it was just part of what I, 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 I knew. Um, and and uh, even though my experience was very different. Well, I, um, I, it's going to be a bestseller if it, it isn't already. And I just think it's such a, a tribute to uh, that time that again, uh, and I, I know it's probably unfair to, uh, to talk just generationally about this, but I just think for, for our generation, uh, it is a, uh, it's a love letter to uh, the sixties in, in a way uh, for me, it was, um, I think it's so important that people, and then for younger people to understand what really went on in the sixties. So all baby boomers uh, and, and others, uh, Gen Xers and millennials and uh, uh, by the book, um, Bobby Ann, I know you must be terrifically proud of Patchwork. Patchwork, the anthology from the University Press of Kentucky. And that came out last year. Two years ago. Two years ago. Um, And again, uh, on on the front cover, uh, a a Bobby Ann Mason reader. It just seems this is full of pride. I can almost see your picture on the cover uh, with a big smile on your face uh, because of all that is contained in here. I mean, it's, uh, in, and I mean this in the kindest way, it's a textbook of uh, great writing and of writing that, that you produced. Uh, again, you must be so proud of it. Tell me about Patchwork. Well, first of all, I adore the cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's an amazing thing they did at the University Press. <clears throat> and I, I didn't want it to be like a patchwork quilt and be uh, sentimental or rustic or cute. I wanted it to be edgy <laughs> and striking. So uh, somehow they did that, and I am amazed by it. I guess I chose pieces that I uh, am fond of in some way <clears throat> um, and uh, thought illustrated what I've done over the years. A lot of it excerpts from novels to give you a taste of. Two things, uh, Bobby Ann. Um, I've always heard this story and I've repeated it um, maybe too often without checking with the the source, you. Um, And that is when you started writing um, and you were in New York, you went for the big time. Uh, You weren't some co ed that went to a Northeastern college and then came back home and and did whatever teachers that uh, I mean uh, uh, students uh, that go to college away and then come back to 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 their state you went to you went to the big apple didn't you um well i could i think you had two choices can um, the east coast or the west coast if you wanted to get out and go to the big time so I was very naively um, just went to New York by myself and looked for a job. And so I worked on a movie magazine, movie and TV magazines. And this is the story that I've, um, that I've heard that you began to submit to various and sundry uh, literary magazines and, and uh, a publicist and uh, trying to get your work out there. And that you uh, were rejected several times, um, and that you used to have a, a drawer full of rejections that you would just stuff full of uh, these rejection notices. 
Is that a is that true? No, you got it all wrong. <laughs> After college, I went to New York and worked for a year, and then I went to graduate school for about um, eight years. <laughs> and um, then I got a job teaching journalism for about eight years, and then I sent a story to the New Yorker, and I got uh, letters from Roger Angel, the fiction yes. editor. Yes. He rejected 19 stories. There were no rejection slips that I put in the drawer. He rejected 19 stories and bought the 20th one. Oh, my goodness. And in 1979. And so I did not collect uh, rejection slips. I didn't submit fiction all those years. I didn't uh, write much fiction. Actually, I wrote two, two novels, Practice. What were you sending to the New Yorker? Uh, stories, the first first stories, really, that I wrote. Uh, fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And um, I understand um, you, you probably, he, he has just passed away. Is that correct? Or sometime, and there, there's a new collection of his work, or? Uh, he had his 100th birthday just recently. Oh, yeah. Okay. Maybe that's it then. Well, I'm glad that you corrected me on the story that I've been telling to, to writers and, and to young people about, mm. uh, I won't use the word rejected anymore, but the 19th and 20th, that, that's, that's interesting. So, so it, it wasn't like rejection. Each one was encouragement. And he was working with me, in effect, to um, <clears throat> um, give me some sense that I was a writer and that I could do it and he would offer observations. Can you tell me about your relationship with George Saunders? Um, I, I don't. Um, I met him last year, I think. Um, but before that, he had written this extraordinary uh, foreword or introduction to the the book Patchwork, and uh, so. Um, I don't know much to tell you. <laughs> so there, there wasn't. Uh, I thought maybe you had met him uh, previously, or um, somehow had had gotten connected with him. But 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 that was just the first time uh, that you had. Yeah, I think we had exchanged admiring emails over the years. And and you. Um, you like his writing. You love his style, and and you. Oh you... yeah, he's he's uh, off the wall. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you always working on something? I heard you tell uh, our um, National Endowment for the Humanities Chair John Peaty uh, at the Southern Book Festival in Nashville in a virtual uh, conversation that uh, you you don't really you don't write from an outline. Uh, you don't necessarily um, your your craft takes you from you're you're not planning or thinking that far ahead. You're just sitting down and and putting it together as you go. Could you tell us a little bit about your writing life and how how all this comes together in such a such a work like Dear Anne? Uh, well, Dear Anne, I dabbled at for six years. It. it um... Uh, I didn't have a lot of confidence in it. It had to build very slowly. Um, and and so I was just writing it um, off by myself without a, a contract or anybody um, taking a special interest in it. Um, nor, and, and I haven't written anything since then. Um, normally... I just take a spark, a word, a, a group of words, a notion. Uh, Dear Anne was a long meandering path to get started. Um, I didn't know. I mean, it's, uh, it started with reading my mother's letters. And um, uh, that I thought I'd make a book of her letters. And then I started to wonder, well, who's she writing to? And so it just grew from that. And then, then uh, 
um, it, it's mostly just jotting bits and pieces of, of words and details and wondering how they're going, where they're leading me. And uh, I thought up these characters, Anne and Jimmy. I was writing a few flash fictions, mm. and I thought, well, I'll write an, a little novella made of flash fictions. But they got bigger in my imagination than that would hold, so it turned into a novel. Um, but usually, I don't. I don't uh, have a theme. I, I, I'm working to discover what what is this about. Where is it leading me? <laughs> uh, what is the surprise? So, do you today enjoy thinking about? the past and thinking about growing up uh, in Kentucky and being in your mother's kitchen and at her apron strings and smelling the aromas that um, some of us in rural Kentucky grew up with? Oh, I think I'm always thinking of the past and, and putting together what it's all about and how it shapes up. I think finally you're, your life can be seen like a novel um, because it has a form, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it has characters. And, and discovering the themes of your life is a great pleasure. You start to understand uh, why you did this or that or uh, what, how you repeated yourself in various ways. Give us a, um, if you would, if you've got uh, the novel uh, close by, um, and I, I know that um, you're 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 fond of Jimmy uh, as as uh, a lead protagonist, a lead character, I guess. Um, and that section that you write, uh, I mentioned Kelly and Sheets um, on on page seventy five. Yeah. Would you just read a little bit of that, please? Maybe to the to the top of uh, of the next page, or or whatever uh, would would be just fine. Just r- give us a flavor of uh, of their relationship. Okay. Um, she she's been trying not to think of him. She's at Stanford University, and um, various things are happening that are not. Uh, her life is going nowhere. She feels insecure. And then Jimmy appeared, and I have here a little passage in italics. He isn't supposed to be here, and so on. Uh, but she thinks they're in California. It can be a different story. Okay. <clears throat> Jimmy sat across from Anne in the Kelly and Sheets class. That's what he called the seminar on the poetry of Keats and Shelley. That was probably an old joke, she thought later. Whenever she glanced up from her notebook, he was gazing across the oval table at her, but he lowered his eyes when she noticed him. Her heart did a butterfly caffeine flutter. He had long, shaggy hair like a poodle dog. Random ringlets framed his face. At the end of the class, he shoved his books into a green canvas bag and slung it over his shoulder before he moved in her direction. Which is your favorite, Kelly or Sheets, he asked. Keats, of course, she said. How can that be a question? She was trembling. Touche, he grinned. He had nice, even teeth. He was smoking a cigarette. They headed down the stairs. Where do you come from, he asked. I like your accent. Kentucky, can you hear my accent? Yeah, can you hear mine? Hmm, a little northern, Detroit. Chicago, he sucked in his cigarette and then blew little contrails out his nostrils. Tell me everything about yourself, he said. Everything? Sure. What was your first word? First tooth, stuff from your baby book. Oh. <laughs> that's that's beautiful, uh, Bobby Ann. It really is. It's such a well. It's just it's just a wonderful work, and uh, we appreciate your time, and uh, we wish you the best with this and and whatever else you're going to work on next. Uh, 
And uh, thank you for taking the, the time to be with us on Think Humanities. We're looking forward to you being uh, at the Kentucky Book Festival uh, coming up uh, pretty soon. Let me uh, throw in a shameless plug for that. You'll be joining uh, other writers on November the 10th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, the title of the panel is Writing Historical Fiction with uh, Margaret Verbal, uh, also of Lexington, Roxanne Robinson, Bobby Ann Mason, Annette Clapsaddle. Um, and you write about um, uh, protagonists, uh, all of you from the 1860s all the way up to the 1960s. That includes your friend Anne. Um, your novel, Dear Anne, and other work is available from our independent bookseller, Joseph Beth, at josephbeth.com. So let me just close by saying, Bobby Ann Mason, you are Kentucky writing, and we honor you uh, for that. And thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much. And um, I enjoyed being here. And so I hope everyone enjoys the book festival. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.